Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. And if you checked it out, please give it a good rating. It's a wonderful podcast. Water is one of the biggest driving forces of life on Earth. It's been incredibly influential in human history from the time we were hunter-gatherers looking for fresh sources of water to the uh, uh, agricultural revolution and building bigger and bigger cities eventually having plumbing uh, the way that it changed sanitation uh, irrigation and what is the what's the future of water are we going to have enough of this stuff how can we make more clean fresh water i just listened to a very interesting episode alchemy turning milk into water sustainable water management this episode is all about this very candid conversation about water coffee industrial practices sustainable value chain and social responsibilities with uh this man carlos uh galli who Uh, whose job it is to make sure that the biggest food and beverage company in the world is leading a healthy and sustainable lifestyle. Incredibly important stuff. You guys are into science. You guys are into learning, caring about the world, caring about our future. This podcast is for you. Check out the Waterline podcast on iTunes and your Android app. Hey everybody, quick note about uh, some issues we were having with subscription problems last year. I hope they're all over. Uh, let me know if, uh, if any of you guys are having trouble with your um, subscriptions being automatically updated. Uh, last year, I, I, some people wrote me wondering if I was still doing the podcast. It turns out that there is some sort of issue with, uh, with people with iPhones and um, perhaps not updating software. We didn't really know what was going on. Um, but we tried a bunch of different things and I think it's all cleared up now. And, uh, and so there shouldn't be any issues from here on up. If there's any, ever anything like that or uh, sound issues or anything like that, uh, make sure and write the here we are podcast.com website and my web producer, Ramin Nazer will get right on it. Make sure and check out Ramin Nazer.com. That's R A M I N. N-A-Z-E-R dot com. He is a fantastic stand-up comic. Uh, you can watch many of his clips and get his uh, special and album on there. And he uh, is a fantastic um, comic book artist. And you can check out many of his animations and even um, phone game uh, apps that he's made. Tons of different stuff, super talented and creative guy, and uh, he is a good enough friend that he takes the time to uh, produce this podcast on my shoestring budget, and I am forever grateful to him, so please go and support him. Uh, go to RameenNazer.com, and, uh, and now enjoy uh, the theme song by Zach Sherwin and Mike Kaplan. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today I'm doing, uh, this is my my last interview in Boulder here. I've had a fun time hanging out around Boulder and, and Denver, uh, one of my favorite places in in the country um, and slash world, as far as I can tell so far. And uh, so I'm going to be sad to leave, even though the weather is starting to get bad around here. So I'm actually going to Wisconsin is not a solution for getting out of the Boulder weather. Anyhow, I'm rambling on for no reason. Uh, today, I'm talking with Assistant Professor of Marketing here at, uh, at the University of Colorado Boulder, uh, Philip Fernbach, who is also a cognitive scientist. And uh, once again, another, uh, another suggestion from my good friend, uh, Peter McGraw. So uh, 
How are you doing today, Philip? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, this is this is pretty good timing for this interview because um, everyone's getting real revved up about politics. Uh, you know, going going into the election year, which is when this will be released, and um, and and you do a fair amount of research. That was when I was looking through your work. One of the things that I was the most interested in was uh, was some of your work on on how. Um, uh, you're going to have to help me uh, articulate this a bit, but kind of how how people um, arrive at their uh, political opinions and and how much uh, value and stock they put in their own um, kind of opinions. Exactly. Yeah. So so one of the ideas is about um, how much we underestimate how how well we understand things. Um, it's, uh, the like um, the. Illusion of explanatory depth. That's exactly That's, right. Yeah. Uh, so, for my listeners, what that is is uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's pretty much the nature of, uh, of of thinking. We often um, think that we can go a lot deeper in terms of um, explaining and understanding things than we actually can. So, if you prompt somebody to to try to explain something, usually they start grasping and they can't go very deep at all. They realize that what they actually understand is really shallow. Originally, this was studied um, by a guy named Frank Kyle, a psychologist at Yale, um, studying things like uh, can openers and, and uh, sewing machines and stuff like that. Um, and we applied this to, to political issues. So, so yeah. when you say that, so, so he would like ask people, how does a can opener work? Yeah, exactly. Or, people, uh, you know, so basically, the, the paradigm is, Shane, when you said to, that, I was like, I know how a can Yeah, exactly, works. there it is. Of course I know. Yeah, my favorite example of this is a toilet, right? You ask <laughs> people, do you know how a toilet works? Especially men. Most men think they're sort of amateur plumbing, plumbing experts. Uh, use one many times a day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, that, that's part of it, right? It's very familiar. So you say, oh, yeah, I know it, I know it. You say, okay, explain it to me. And then people start saying, well, there's this thing that does the, the thing and so that's just kind of the nature of of of, of our thinking and this is really on, on display in politics so did did you watch the debate last night no i did not okay. i make a conscious effort to try to never ever watch and actually the debates i don't mind so much but i try to not watch the news because i used to obsessively watch it like uh, yeah. like 12 hours a day and i almost went insane and so I just stopped, and my life got a whole lot better. <laughs> I was, okay, so I, I love this stuff. Okay. I really enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so here's just one, one example. Okay. Um, they asked, uh, th- there's been some debate about, oh, should we, you know, quote, unquote, shut down the Internet for ISIS so that they can't use the Internet or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so they had this conversation that, that was, you know, among adults who are supposed to be educated about these kind of issues, and they're asking questions like, should we shut down the Internet? And and we should shut down parts of the internet. And, and, and it's clear, if you go a little bit deeper, they have no clue how the internet works, what it would be involved in shutting it down, whether it's even possible, whether it violates uh, uh, laws, whether it violates the, the Constitution, the, 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 uh, the Bill of Rights, et cetera. So these things, are, everything in the world rapidly becomes really, really complex. And well, we, can't you just yeah. shoot down ISIS's satellite exactly. up there yeah. and then that takes care of your problem? Exactly. Right? That's shut, how the shoot internet down the works. ISIS satellite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, I mean, this is just, and, and so one, one thing we do, I think, is we watch this stuff and we're like, oh, these people are so stupid. That's typically the reaction. Even in academia, there's a lot of um, academic work in political psychology, which is like, Republicans are like this, and Democrats are like that. And um, when I when when I've done some of this research, which is kind of showing that a lot of extremism bo- on both sides of the aisle, um, a lot of extremism is based on beliefs and attitudes that people have that aren't really well grounded in a deep understanding of the issues. I get um, uh, emails from from like my bolder friends. You can imagine which side of the aisle they're on, and they're like, right. "I know the other side is is so stupid." Yeah, and it's yeah, like, yeah. "No, no, I'm talking about about you, right, <laughs> you, and right, you, right. you know, you, you're like you're you're uh, you're, you're super um, angry attitudes towards GMOs, and I have to ask you to explain a little bit about gen- genetic engineering, and you don't even know what a gene is. Right. So that's just one example. I'm not saying that that necessarily there aren't that there aren't necessarily some some good justifications for a lot of attitudes out there. But in general, people's attitudes tend to be based on not too much. GMOs is a great example yeah. of that, actually, because it's like 
everything's genetically modified. Everything in the world is genetically modified that has genes in it has been modified by evolution. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, so there's actually interesting work on that, comparing uh, people's attitudes towards things when you, um, like for instance, um, uh, crossbreeding is a very tried and true technique that people have been doing for thousands of years Mm -hmm. to develop new strains of whatever. And um, it's kind of similar to genetic engineering just over a long time scale. Right. People are exactly. much more comfortable with it. Right. Um, and, so, and so there's there's been interesting work by um, guys like a guy named Paul Rosin and others looking at this stuff. Like, um, you know, you, you take something like a dog breed and you look at like a poodle. There's nothing natural about that, right? Yeah, but yeah. yet it's, it seems kind of okay. But no, if I created poodle, a... poodles were in the Bible. <laughs> exactly. I, I, I remember but you create a poodle in the lab, and all of a sudden, you know, that would be pretty weird. In some ways, actually, genetic uh, modification is, is like, more understood and less of a change to something than is interbreeding. Uh, yeah. Or cross and, Crossbreeding, excuse me. And it's a totally different thing than, like, say something like uh, covering something in pesticides or something right. like that, you know, or genetically modify it. Yeah, I, I don't know. Everything anyway, is, I, I've done a, a quite a yeah. bit of research on, on people's attitudes towards GMOs. And one thing you find is that pretty quickly, I mean, people don't even know what a gene is, you know? Mm-hmm. like, uh, um, and it, so, so where I was going w- with this thing of, oh, people are stupid, um, one, of, one of, like, my big takeaways about this is, is that it's really part and parcel. It's a very, very fundamental aspect of the way the mind works. And so our expectations usually outstrip our expectations for the amount of knowledge and detailed information that people have in their minds often outstrips what's actually um, possible with the way the mind works. Mm. And um, like one thing our mind is really good at is working together in a community of knowledge where I don't necessarily have to know something, but someone else might know it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the knowledge like, for instance, the knowledge that supports people's attitudes towards scientific topics like GMOs, et cetera, it's actually not in your own head. It's sort of in other people. It's out, you know, in the Internet, wherever it is. It's all out there. I mean, we're able to actually do it, right, Yeah. to genetically modify things. I can go buy a genetically modified tomato right now. There's not one person on, on Earth who has all of the knowledge to actually get that tomato to my table. Right, you right. Know? So, so, like, what we're really good at is... Um, and this might sound a little pie in the sky, right? um, but what minds are really good at is sharing and collaborating and having this knowledge that's sort of distributed across the community. What we're not so good at is having a ton of detailed information in our own heads. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's, a, there's a lot of reasons for that um, in terms of the way the mind works and what it was designed for. It, it's interesting that... Uh, that our mind also tricks us, though, into thinking that we exactly. have. You know, it's uh, uh, th- there's a quote. Oh, who was who it that uh, like in our heads? Everything we know is all there is. Yeah. Like to our brains, whatever information is that that's all the information that's available. Yeah, I think what you're thinking of is the Danny Kahneman. Yeah, uh, what you see is all there is. Oh idea. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that's, that's definitely related. We tend to think about what's in, in our heads and not what we don't know. That's part of the illusion of explanatory depth. Mm-hmm. We focus on the parts that we understand, and we don't realize how complex things are. Mm-hmm. Um, everything is, like, really complex. Um, but, yeah, there is this kind of illusion. And, and I think that the illusion is partially driven by the fact that that knowledge is out there. And our own individual knowledge that's in our heads is so intertwined with knowledge that's out there in the world that we don't really draw the distinction very well. So just by, by, by associating with that knowledge that's out there, um, we feel like we know it. Yeah, I, I feel, I, I don't know if this is the best example in the world, but sometimes, you know, if I'm talking with, uh, with, with someone about, um, uh, you know, oil possibly running out, or which admittedly, you know, I, I don't I don't know all that much. I tried to read an article or two here and there. You mean you're not a petroleum engineer? On the side? Uh, no, not uh, not yet. Okay. Um, but but a, a lot of times, you know, be like, well, you know, what happens if uh, when we have less oil, the price is going to go? Uh, you know, that seems to make sense. And, and a lot of times, people will just be like, oh, they'll figure it out. Uh, <laughs> well, who's who's they? Like uh, scientists, but. 
but but they're the ones saying, uh, you know, like like you know, I dated a geochemist for a while who actually yeah. now works trying to find oil for oil companies, and those are the people saying like, no, we are we're running out, and it's getting harder to find and yeah. harder to drill for and everything else. But uh, but but it's like the same person that's like, oh, they'll figure it out. But they're telling you that they aren't figuring it out, right? <laughs> you know. But even those people, the people who are figuring it out, right? They, those individuals, know a lot less than we normally think that they do. Right, right. Yeah. So, like, we talk about. Um, I mentioned that, that, that I'm working on this book, and um, one of the things we talk about is the uh, the development of the nuclear bomb. Which, um, for any of your listeners, this is a super fascinating topic. You should go read some books on it. I, I read a few books on it. Um, to try to get get some um, some good examples and stories, and it's amazing how you take the most amazing physicists and engineers and, and and geniuses, put them all together, and they can do the most amazing thing, like harness the power of the atom. I mean, it was only discovered in the early 1900s that there wasn't, you know, that there were that there that there was a nucleus, and then a few years later, we're harnessing that power in nuclear weapons. I mean, it's just the most incredible story, but. Um, there's this, this, this great story in the 50s um, of a detonation of a, of a test weapon which ended up being a thousand times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about a hydrogen bomb, incredibly powerful, blown up in, in the South Pacific. And um, they underestimated the yield of the bomb <laughs> by three times. Oops. Oops. Big oops. <laughs> okay, so here's, here's, here's the, the big oops. They irradiated two inhabited atolls in the South Pacific, and um, those atolls had to be evacuated like permanently. They sent the natives back there three years later. They started getting cancer, mm. and they left again, and, and it's still uninhabited. Wow. So, like, I mean, I mean humanity's um, capable of the most amazing things. We're also capable of the most amazing fuck-ups huh. because individuals do not – it, it, all the power is in the collaboration. It's not in terms of what individuals are capable of. Hmm. Um, so what ended up happening, the reason they, they didn't understand the yield is because they didn't really understand the weapon. So they were, um, you know, I won't go into all the, det- the physics details. I couldn't, even if, hmm. I, if I wanted to. Oh, I got this. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> there's this thing called lithium-7, which is, they thought was inert at the time. Mm-hmm. And, but it turns out, until they blew the thing up and they found out that actually lithium-7... Um, turns into this stuff called tritium, which is a very highly unstable isotope of hydrogen that creates huge amounts of neutrons that 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 create uh, huge amounts of explosive power. Mm. And so they didn't even know this until they blew the darn thing up. Can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, f- 15 what, megatons. What if it would have been uh, uh, 20 times more powerful than they thought it? Was. Yeah. <laughs> well, know. I mean... Who it could have very well been. It's crazy. Know. I mean, it's crazy what, what people are capable of, both in terms of on the... On the on the positive side, like the you know the amazing things that we're capable of, um, but uh, we are we are also very flawed creatures. So, uh, what what kind of so how are you studying this stuff specific? Uh, like you said, you do studies with GMOs, or uh, so so what are you actually doing? Like when you're asking people about their knowledge or whatever, how are you testing in this? Yeah, that, I mean that's a, that's a great question. So with with the politics stuff that I talked about, the typical paradigm we use is to is to ask people how well they understand stuff, ask them for their positions on issues, ask them to try to explain, and we collect their explanations, and then we ask them again, um, how well do you feel like you understand now? And typically you see these big drops. And we also ask for positions. We see that people become a little more moderate in their positions. They say, like, oh, yeah, I'm really in favor of cap and trade. Um, and they say, okay, explain that to me. What is that? And, uh, and, and then people can't come up with anything. They get a little more moderate. Um, one thing that's kind of interesting in those studies is we compare um, what we call mechanistic explanation. So explain to me how it works. Um, we compare that to people generating reasons for their positions, which is kind of an interesting comparison because in some ways it seems kind of similar, but the results are very different. So if you ask people, um, why do you support cap and trade? Or why do you oppose cap and trade? It's pretty easy to pe- for people to come up with reasons, even if they don't know what the heck they're talking about. Mm. Oh, because it's good for the environment, uh, you know, uh, whatever it is. So reason generation, generating reasons, doesn't have the same effect. Hmm. In fact, in some cases, people get more entrenched in their opinions when they give reasons. Um, so, so if you ask, like, um, 
why why don't you believe in global warming and then people might list off like a bunch of conspiracies yeah. or like uh you know a bunch of it's a bunch of like hippie uh, bleeding heart stuff or something like that but if you were to say ask them well do you know how the greenhouse effect this is an ex- works? a great example because a guy named Michael Ranney who's a psychologist at UC Berkeley did exactly this and mm. he found exactly that so actually, he went to some parks in San Diego, I think, and uh, asked people um, the, in a first study. He asked people just explain the mechanism of of uh, the greenhouse effect, which uh, is it, it is complicated. Uh, there's uh, a he lot asked of like five hundred people, like like zero got it right. Yeah, and he, nobody has a freaking clue. Well, it's very counterintuitive. It's yeah. that you first have to understand that glass is not a solid thing. It's something. It's uh, because of the molecular structure. The light rays are actually not touching anything. They're actually passing through nothing at all uh-huh. uh, because they're they're thin enough. The wavelength is is uh, long and narrow enough, but in my understanding, and then and then the light is is hitting enough molecules in the air to cause them to vibrate to heat up, and then and then the air inside heats up. But then the air is is um, is less dense than the windows are. Or, or no way, the other way around. <laughs> okay, so and see, you could be to- talking total shit right now, and I would just be nodding because I have no freaking clue. Yeah, yeah. And I read about this stuff like a couple weeks ago. That's the nature of the human mind. I mean, we don't retain right. details, uh, mechanistic details. So, um, so, so yeah, that's what he found. Like nobody knows. Yeah. But if you if you I just if you killed it by the way, yeah, that, that was awesome. <laughs> uh, I'm very impressive. Um, you just came from an interview across campus with the, uh, no, the guys I, I used, to be, I used to be big into physics. Okay. I haven't had okay. any physicists. Oh, we should talk yet. about that next. Um, I love space science. All stuff. right. Awesome. Okay. I've never talked about physics or space science on the show one single right. time yet. I have a good person right. for you to talk to. Awesome. Uh, besides me. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, th- so, so he's been doing this thing. Actually, he has a website. I don't remember the... The, uh, the location, but maybe we can put it in the show notes. I can, I can find it. But yeah. he, he has um, these videos and very short explanations, mechanistic explanations mm-hmm. of how the greenhouse effect works. And he, he's, he's found very promising results that actually you get people um, really pushing their opinions and attitudes around. Hmm. So uh, um, not, not pushing them around. I mean that people get more receptive and open to um, evidence that challenges their preexisting beliefs. So just yelling at people, you know, it does, that doesn't work. You're stupid. Your group is wrong. Here's the evidence. Um, it just doesn't work. I mean, usually when people are like Shane, you're an idiot. I'm like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'm, I'm an outlier. Typical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you probably just heard it so many times. Thanks, mom and dad. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, so yeah, I think I think there there there's some efficacy there. I mean, there's this is like one of my overall f- favorite like high level topics is about science literacy and science communication. There's this idea called the deficit model, which is sort of the I don't know if you've heard of it. It's like the mm-hmm. traditional way that people think about science literacy and, and science education um, and science outreach is the idea that um, people who don't like science are anti science. It's because they don't understand, mm-hmm. and um, so we should just give them more information. And basically, like, never works. Right. There's there's very poor track record for that idea. And a lot of it comes down to this stuff that we're embedded in our communities. And so I don't have the individual, like, so we're talking about global warming. I believe in global warming. But it's not because I understand the mechanism. It's because, you know, some people told me that it's true who I trust, you know, and I've read some articles that there's a consensus and all that kind of stuff. But what's actually in my head, it's not very much at all. And I'm a pretty educated guy Mm -hmm. so um you take somebody who who denies global warming and you come to them and say oh global warming is true because of this this and this and they're like well i live in a community of you know millions of people that all affiliate together and the people i trust are telling me something different right and um and this belief that i have it's it's wrapped up with a lot of other beliefs that i have and if i got rid of that belief i'd have to get rid of a ton of my other beliefs and and so you come into me um, and right, you're telling me that you're right. Like, that's just not going to have much efficacy compared to the strength of, of my community and all these other beliefs that are tied up with it and stuff. So, 
So, I mean, and it's, it's easy. Yeah. It's easy to find evidence for things you already believe too. Absolutely. You know, the, of course. Yeah. Of course, global warming isn't real. Look at how much snow you got in Boulder yesterday. Exactly. Where's all this global warming stuff? And then, exactly. You know, you might not say that during the summer when it's super hot out, but yeah. um, people are, are you know masterful at getting to the conclusions that they want to get to. So, but again, I mean, you know, the normal narrative on this stuff is that these people are idiots, that they're stupid. Mm -hmm. And I just have never found that a satisfactory, satisfying explanation. I mean, it's like, you know, 50 million Elvis fans can't be wrong. Do I have the the quote right? I mean, it's like um, you have these huge swaths of the population that, that believe things that we know verifiably are incorrect. And it just feels um, reductive to say that it's a bunch of stupid people. Right. I just don't think it's correct. I mean, I think cognition, thinking, the mind is is way we, it deserves more than that. It's way more interesting than that. So if you take more of a nuanced, sort of high level perspective on what the mind is for, um, and and how we work together in these kind of communities, then I think you get to a kind of richer answer. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm from a small town in Wisconsin. That's not. Um, I didn't grow up around a lot of science oriented people. Yeah. Certainly. But um, it, it's but talking with someone there's there's no there's no um, noticeable difference in intelligence than some the, the, like right. the people that I hang out with in L.A. That yeah they they believe in science but they don't know a damn thing about <laughs> it you know if if they if they would have no easier time understanding this podcast than you know right. someone in the Midwest would you know. Yeah. We tend to vilify the other side. I mean, we have, we we um, demagogue the, their their positions and stuff like that. And you know, some of that is justifiable. I think on, on you know, uh, like you know, I, uh, I try to, as a scientist, try to stay even keeled in terms of um, you know, my bring my own personal politics into the work. I do think that um, one of the parties more than the other has a tendency in the upper echelons to support sort of anti-scientific positions and stuff like that. But it's certainly not uh, universally true. I mean... Yeah, liberals are... Everybody has their... And uh, vaccine conspiracies. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So in Boulder, you get to see a lot of this stuff, actually. Mm -hmm. So my my kids uh, about to enroll in in kindergarten, they're in nursery school now, and I found out that something like 10 or 20% of the kids in their school are not vaccinated. I mean, it's just really... (laughs) Horrible. So, yeah, I mean, it's crazy. That's troubling. Yeah. So, as as someone who um, is want, would love for more people to be more interested in science, uh, mostly so they would listen to me talk more. <laughs> uh, what 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 do you think can be done to uh, like you know you give the example of the video of global warming that shows the mechanistic yeah um, kind of explanations that that help inform people and 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 this is this is creating like a real change in people's position um do you so so is that you just have to figure out ways to spell it but but at the same time you said it's very difficult to um if if you just give people the information um that might not work either so do you are there any like well-studied methods for i don't think anyone knows that these are huge like really difficult problems that have to be attacked at multiple levels. Like one level is the individual level. And and the individual level, I think, we tend to think of people on the other side as being really extreme. But the truth is that most people are, you know, they have their position, but they don't feel as strongly about it as we think that they do, especially, you know, if it's something that's sort of contentious. Um, and so part of it is the individual level, which would be, it would be great if, everyone was a little more reflective about thinking about the fact that they don't themselves have the information to really strongly hold, hold stuff, um, hold these positions. And I think that would help bring people to the table. I mean, we, most of the airtime is dedicated to extremism. Mm. So you hear the most extreme versions of all of these things because, um, the incentive structure in Washington and stuff, um, uh, it, uh, supports, um, polarization. I mean, you're getting this crazy polarization. So, so you you have a lot of uh, failure to compromise. I think if the it's a lot more exciting too. The news. I mean, yeah, uh, like who? 
my moderate stuff is just so boring, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'd like uh, I'd like tax policy and stuff like that to remain boring and, and for yeah. everybody to come to the table and just find the optimal solution that we'd all agree on. I mean, right. Like, you know, this is one thing is that um, we uh, there's a lot of issues where I don't think there's actually fundamental disagreements. I mean, we, we all want to achieve the same goals, and, and um, people who hold one position or the other don't know enough about the mechanisms of the policy itself to figure out whether their chosen position really strongly would support the benefit that they want. Um, so I, I think that, like, we'd all do with a little bit more intellectual humility. I mean, that's sort of um, at the individual level. That's a little bit pie in the sky, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people are people, and most people are going to fall prey to this illusion of explanatory depth. It's a very natural state of, uh, of cognition. But, you know, as I've been doing this research, I've, I found myself sort of trying to get, out, get outside of myself. Am I really so sure about X? You know? Yeah. It um, certainly helps me with this podcast, having <laughs> to do this every week. And yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't know anything yeah, exactly. <laughs> at all. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I, I'm reminded every, every interview. You know, it's like... Um, we're, we're trapped in our own brains, you know, like we can only see, it's like Plato's cave. We can only see the world through our own eyes. And, and that world feels real, very real to us. So when we believe something, we believe it with a lot of passion and strength. And, and sometimes after reflection, five years down the road, how could I have thought X was the case? At the time, X was definitely true. Right. Five years later, it's like, man, that's interesting that I thought that before that this must be true, like 100%. And now I see from a broader perspective. So, um, you know, like I think a little intellectual humility is is probably a good thing. Well, I mean, part of it too is, I mean, there's, you have to like move forward and take actions in your life and you can't be questioning every single thing. That's the flip side. Yeah, that's the the flip side of it. You know, there's, there's humility and then there's diffidence. Right. Diffidence means I just you know can't do anything. I can't make a decision because I there's too much complexity and everything. So that's actually what this community of knowledge idea gives us. Mm. Like it gives us the confidence to move forward and take actions and decisions and mm. stuff like that. That's why when we see leaders who are decisive as opposed to like appear incompetent, you know it's it's interesting, right? Like Obama gets knocked a lot for for uh, Christie called him a feckless weakling. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty strong claim against, you know, the sitting president. Right. Anyway, I, I was I was saying to Anna that I thought that was a little bit outrageous. And then I was thinking back to, um, you know, when, when George W. Bush was president. And I, I think everybody called him stupid and idiotic all the time. So I was like, eh, turnabout's fair play. But, but still, that right. felt pretty intense, right? So Obama gets a knock because he's too deliberative. Mm-hmm. That should be a mark of competence, like a guy who doesn't jump and and – Right. And, and make a decision like really quickly, but that's not what people react to in yeah. in, uh, in leaders. You don't see you don't see Trump doing a lot of like shoulder shrugging. Jeez, uh, well, I, I don't know. More research needed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, people don't react to that. Yeah, you know, yeah. and it's because we want that signal that somebody else has has it figured out. He's a winner. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like you know, this is this is all part and parcel of this stuff. We really react to that. Because that's a that's a clue, that's a signal that that guy's got figured out, and that he's gonna or she is is somebody who really understands how things work and and uh, and stuff like that. So, so so when when you mention individual differences, rather than saying you know Democrat or liberal or whatever, uh, I uh, could you talk a little bit about your work with um, uh, the idea of the explanation fiends? Yeah, this stuff votes? all ties in. Yeah, 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 this stuff's really it's it's really uh, a good point. So, um, in terms of explanation, so so um, so um, imagine um, you go to the store and you buy some. Band- you're looking for some band aids, okay? Mm-hmm. And the band aids, there's a new feature. They say they've got bubbles in the padding. If you put awesome new if you put new on a package, yeah. I'm buying it every time, and I know it. I'm such a sucker for it. <laughs> I just like I think I have like uh, this is this is the problem with having too much confidence in yeah. like science or engineering or whatever. Oh, the new I bet that's the best. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so okay, so bubbles in the padding, right? You you'd buy it, okay? Um, I'd probably look at it and be like, okay. Mm, why, why do you have bubbles? What's that going to do for you? Mm, so now I'm going to well, add a, a little lot explanation. Like that. Okay. <laughs> the bubbles increase airflow, and that, um, that helps healing. 
Oh. Okay. All right. Now I'm like, okay, this this is pretty good. Uh, let let's go for it, right? Because you've added a little bit of explanation that yeah, explains yeah, how yeah. it works. Okay. So now, if you think about that explanation, it's not a very good explanation. Mm-hmm. Why does airflow help a, a wound heal? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so I could add a little more detail. Okay. The oxygen molecules in the air interfere with the metabolic processes of the bacteria that are responsible for infection, and therefore they help the wound heal faster. Now I'm buying two packs. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so you might be what we call an explanation fiend. Okay. An explanation foe is almost everybody. That first explanation, they're grabbing those Band-Aids. They're like, right. yeah, this is good. Not a very good explanation, but it's enough for them to go, I get it. This is related to this illusion of explanatory depth. Mm-hmm. You start talking about bacteria and metabolic processes. I go, holy shit, this is complicated. Mm. I'm going to go for something else. So, so we have this distinction between explanation fiends and explanation foes. Do you like a lot of detailed explanation or do you, or do you like these very shallow explanations that just give you a feeling that you get it? Now, if you think about this community of knowledge idea we've been talking about, these little shallow explanations, they're like pointers to the community of knowledge. They say someone, some scientists out there have figured this out. And we're just giving you a little hint that, that somebody knows about this. And, and you read that and you're like, okay, I get it. Mm-hmm. Right? So, um, so, so that's, that's how most people are. Some people are different. We all, we all know people like that. Right? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know. I think I'm probably, given that I host this podcast, I'm a bit more of an explanation fiend. Yeah. Probably. So, so let me tell you what, um, what predicts this difference, mm-hmm. this individual difference. It's, it's a test called cognitive reflection. And cognitive reflection is this test that was um, developed by a guy named Shane Frederick. He's a Wisconsinite, actually. Mm. He looks a little like you. I'm not sure. (laughs) Sounds handsome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, He's a good Scrabble player. We have uh, I am a terrible, terrible, terrible Scrabble player. We've been having these uh, words with friends death matches. Yeah, I'm I'm okay at words with friends, but it's it's terrible. We take it pretty serious. Yeah. so he came up with this test called cognitive reflection. And basically what it is, is it's just a couple of simple questions. And um, there's a wrong answer that pops in your head intuitively. And there's a correct answer that takes a little bit of, little bit of thinking to figure out. Okay? And the people who are non-reflective, most people, they just spit out that first answer, that mm-hmm. wrong answer. And the people who are more reflective... They take some time, a couple more seconds, and they do a little bit of math, and they figure out the correct answer. It's the unintuitive answer. Mm. And so um, we can probably uh, you know, give, give some examples. I don't, I don't yeah, want to yeah. put you on the spot by trying to no, ask you these I would, questions. I would, yeah, yeah. They're, they're clever little – they're sort of like brain teaser-y kind now of Now I know it's a trick question too, and so now I'm proud. Oh, well, he's got know. studies where actually he tells people the right answer, and they still get it wrong. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. This is very, this is very powerful kind, right. kind of effect. So these reflective people, they, they tend to think a little more deeply. So like go back to this thing of the, the toilet. Do you know how a toilet works? Well, if I'm non-reflective, I go, oh, yeah. Like I've, I've interacted with it a lot, you know. Yeah. Um, I've, and, I've had the – I used to do construction work. Yeah. And I, I knew nothing about plumbing or electricity. Right. So I'd be like, oh, no, no. Okay, so, that, so you've had that, enough But that's just because of my know. own individual experience. Right. Yeah. So, so a lot of people would say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah I, I get that. But the reflective people stop and think through it a little bit more, and they say, okay, let's actually try to explain it before they're prompted to explain. And so those guys, the explanation fiends, they're not satisfied with that sort of base understanding. They want more, more detail. Mm. Um, and so, so, yeah, I think this is uh, interesting. I mean, you know, some people ask, like, what is it better to be one or the other? And I don't think there's a right answer to that question. Like, uh, explanation fiends can waste a lot of time and minutia and and you know like that like like we've said them the mind is set up to to process things in a shallow way it's a more efficient way of, of going about your life so there's no there's no right way versus wrong way to to orient yourself to the world and also another point is um people might be an explanation fiend in one area like you're into science mm-hmm. you want to learn everything about it Right. But if I give you something else, classic cars, like, would you be obsessed with that? Not at all. Yeah. And then, like, you know, history is very much a weak suit yeah. of mine. Yeah. 
and I'm not as definitely not a fiend. Yeah, when, yeah when exactly. That. So, um, yeah, that's interesting. Can I? Uh, do you know one of those uh, uh, questions? One of the brain t- teaser things uh, off the top of your head um, that you can embarrass me with? Yeah, I just I want to make sure I get the example exactly right. So. Um, let, let's look it up real quick. I'll get the I can picture. edit this. Not a pro- I can okay. like edit this part. Okay. Out. Okay. No problem at all. I'll screw this up if I try to do it. Um, okay. So this is this is the most famous example. A bat and a ball cost a dollar ten in total. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Mm. The, say one more time. A bat and a ball cost a dollar ten in total. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? A nickel. Good. Boom. So you're reflective. Very nice. What's the first thing that popped in your head? Um, a, a, a ten cents. Ten cents. So yeah. that eighty percent of people, even MIT students, give that answer. Okay. Uh, so uh, ten cents pops in your head if you actually add those together. Uh, ten cents plus a dollar ten, you get to a dollar twenty. Yeah, so that's not yeah. the right answer. It's I'm, a nickel. You're right. I'm really good at math, though. Well, okay. First of all, we should point out one. that I told you this was a trick question. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So I also knew it was a trick question. And, well, MIT people are good at math too, I suppose. <laughs> um, is there a non-math one? They're all math. Oh, they're all math. Yeah. All right. One more. One more. Okay. If it takes five machines five minutes to make five widgets. How long would it take 100 machines to make 100 widgets? Oh, boy. I'm supposed to do this in my head? All right. If it takes, say it again. If it takes five machines, five minutes to make five widgets, how long would it take 100 machines to make 100 widgets? Hmm. Well, my my first instinct is to say a hundred, and then that, that would that's be wrong. The, that's the incorrect answer. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's five because each machine takes five minutes to make a widget. Ah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. Ah. Okay, so you are are one for two Uh-oh. on the CRT. Oh so uh, no, I'm getting nervous. You just got lucky. Uh, I, I did just get lucky. Um, uh, here I'm bragging about my math skills and. Okay, there, I, 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 I'm still just real pumped that I was able to explain the greenhouse effect. So no, <laughs> that was that pretty good. Yeah, we're, we're, I'm going to have a. Uh, I'm, I'm going to talk to my friends over in uh, in uh, Earth Sciences and have them vet your your explanation. Yeah, after um, this. I got it from listening to uh, Michio Kaku. Um, uh, oh, Michio Kaku! He's also yeah. the guy that said there's definitely an alien su- superstructure around the <laughs> 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 I knew we'd get to space science. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, Did you see that video? No, no, uh, no. Yeah. I, I, I sort of lost a little bit of respect for Michio Kaku. Yeah, yeah. That. He's a very good communicator, but he overreaches oh, quite totally. a bit. Yeah. Uh, he wrote a book about neuroscience, and right. he's not a neuroscientist at all. Um, <laughs> do, do I have a tiebreaker? Do I get one? one okay, more? there's one more. In a lake, there's a patch of lily pads. Every day, the patch doubles in size. If it takes 48 days for the patch to cover the entire lake, how long would it take for the patch to cover half the lake? Um, 47 days. Good. Okay. Two for three. Yeah. So most people say Ooh, half, people half say of 48. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Ah, all right. All right. I'm, I'm feeling okay yeah. about that. I'll take two for three. There's a lot of good examples out there and stuff like this. There are, there are non-math kind of examples of these kind of trick questions, things that automatically pop into your head. I mean, uh, you've probably talked to some people in, in these podcasts before who talk about things like dual process or dual systems theory or two systems of thinking. Yeah. Just and, recently. Uh, yeah. And so the, all of this stuff, reflection is all, it's all tied into that same idea mm. where we, we have these intuitive thought processes that pop things into our heads. And sometimes those things are, are wrong. I mean, a lot of the times they're right, but sometimes they're wrong. Mm. And, um, and so this illusion of explanatory depth seems to arise from the intuitive mind. The intuitive mind says, I get it. I know enough to move forward with the decision to right. have an attitude, to have a position. Our deliberative, deliberative mind can come in and sort of check that understanding and, 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 and reach down a little deeper and see if there's anything there. Typically, there's nothing there. 
to reach into. Hmm. Well, so, so I have uh, I have something, and and by the way, if there, because I'm this is going to be a little bit of a jump. So if there's like anything you wanted to go back to that you think we're missing out on, that's fine. But but I want to make sure we talk about this work because this is something that I am very bad at uh, is is um, and very interested in the um, your paper on the squeeze, the coping and constraints oh, yeah. through. Um, efficiency and prioritization this is something that uh like i'm i'm bad at i'm i'm like a impulsive spender yeah yeah good you're uh, you are not alone i'm an awful to-do list person and and, uh that so could you talk a little bit about your work with uh sure yeah so so this is this is a a departure it's it's uh, yeah it's completely different so this is work about how people cope with constraints be them time money everybody's short of something mm-hmm. right people who have a lot of money typically don't have a lot of time mm. right people who have a lot of time typically don't have a lot of money um there's other resources out there you know dieters somebody's always trying to watch their calories you're trying to make the most out of a, a you know small number of calories you can eat etc um so how do people cope when they realize they're short and in the paper we distinguish between these two strategies that people use um one is called being more efficient or efficiency planning and the other is called prioritization or priority planning and the idea okay so let's use an example you're trying to um, make your monthly budget you realize things are pretty tight Mm -hmm. okay one thing we could do is we could try to get everything we can just by more efficient by more efficiency so we use coupons we buy we combine things so that they cost less we um you know, get the last scoop out of the mustard jar, whatever it is, efficiency. Mm-hmm. We get everything we want. We just do it in a more efficient way. We cut off, cut away the fat. You can also think of this in time time planning. So um, uh, you have 30 minutes before your next meeting or whatever. You, like, squeeze in some stuff in there. Yeah, so I like can read just, a bunch of abstracts real yeah, quick just before chalk, an interview. Just, just get everything in there. Yeah. And this feels really good. Efficiency planning feels great because – it feels like we're getting something for free. We're getting more done. And, and, and I, I'm very much like this. I love to be efficient mm-hmm. um, with, the use, with the use of my time or whatever. Like when I'm cooking, I, I'm, I'm a big cook. And um, I do like this dance while I'm cooking where any time the onions are cooking or whatever, I'm cleaning a, a pot or something. So by, that by the end, I've used every second like really efficiently. I get joy out of that. I'm not sure why. I think the mind kind of... Kind of likes that. That's efficiency planning. It feels really good. Priority planning is when we, we realize we're really short and we have to start cutting stuff out. So it's like the monthly budget, we're really screwed. And now I have to decide, okay, I'm not going to do the, night, the, the day night with the wife. Or, you know, I'm, I'm going to, um, I'm not, you know, I'm really short. I'm going to take the kids out of private school, mm. whatever it is. That's called priority planning. Often, oftentimes priority planning is necessary, but it feels really painful. You have to give stuff up. Um, and um, there's very interesting dynamics that happen in terms of how people go about um, changing what kind of planning they do as a function of how much constraint they're under. And so what people do is they start by trying to be efficient because it feels good. And what, what they typically do when they're, when they're being really efficient is it, it actually makes it hard to see priorities, to actually make trade-offs. Mm-hmm. Because you get sort of locally focused on being really efficient at whatever task you're doing, and you don't think about the bigger picture. I can still get it all in. <laughs> exactly. If I just am smart yeah. enough about it. Exactly. Right. And, and then what happens is people stick with that strategy for too long, and then when they, when they're really, when, when they finally pick up their head and realize, oh, man, this is pretty bad, they're, they're kind of screwed. Mm. And then one other interesting component of this is what happens if they, um, once they realize they're screwed, is people do not react functionally to that. So people don't go, okay, Things are bad, but let's just pick the best option and move forward with that. Um, they start doing crazy stuff like what you talked about, impulsive spending, whatever, throwing your hands up and saying, I'm screwed anyway. Let's just uh, whatever. Mine is um, I'm going to just binge watch Netflix now because <laughs> I, my, my um, whole world is falling yeah. down around me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but there's a cool escape. show on Netflix. I'm just going to pretend that, that not even that cool of a show. Okay, <laughs> <I'm just laughs> that's probably most of what's on Netflix. <laughs> yeah, um, 
Yeah, so so people can get themselves into these very sticky situations, um, and then they end up really not um, not reacting well after that. Mm. Um, and it has to do with the dynamics of how these things evolve over time, and the fact that if being efficient feels good, prioritizing feels bad. Mm. Um, and and one other thing we look at is um, how budgeting helps. So in in I mean this is true of, in in time management as well, but we looked at this in um, in financial management, money management. So we ran this field experiment where we had students here, actually MBA students, before they went for spring break, we had them budget for their trip beforehand. So they sat in the lab, they um, wrote down exactly what they were going to spend, et cetera, and then they went off and did their spring break trip. Then they came back and they told us like whether they had done these crazy things like impulsive spending and, and overspending and all that kind of stuff. And the budgeting Turns really out I spent more than $100 on alcohol. That's very big. I thought that was a generous a lot. I don't know. Yeah, those guys, they, they, they tend to drink like the $5 handle of vodka or whatever. So I think actually yeah. they can get away pretty cheap. But, um, but, uh, but yeah, no, it actually helps them to control their spending when they do it because they start making those prioritization decisions. So when they've already budgeted, um, it makes it clear how much they have to spend in each category, right? So if they said, I'm gonna, you know, my overall budget is a thousand bucks, I'm gonna spend a hundred bucks on alcohol. And then they go to the store and they realize that that bottle of whatever is 60 bucks. And then, they, then they're like, okay, we're gonna have to cut something out. And so that, that pre budgeting actually helps people manage better because mm. it gets them to get into that prioritization mindset. That's interesting. Uh, this isn't meant to, um, ask you about something that you haven't studied or know anything about but but i was just curious um is there has or has it been studies is is there a difference in um the difference between budgeting or prioritizing the things that you want um as opposed to uh, you, you know like a, a making a Christmas list or you know, yeah. whatever it might be or, or planning for a vacation or something like that. This is like kind of a gain, whereas um, it seems like there would be a difference with, um, you know, now the bill collectors are after you. And yeah, you, that's you a great a point. So, of- th- I mean, this is kind of, it's a little bit of a tangent, but um, we're running studies very similar to this. Like one thing we do a lot is when we're doing stuff on fi- financial stuff, we love the the holiday shopping season because mm. it's this great sort of real event that we can take advantage of. So we, um, with, with, uh, with, with some, um, collaborators, um, John Lynch and Christina can, uh, Christina is really the one leading the charge on this. We're running studies right now where we're looking at the effects of budgeting on holiday gift shopping. And one of our manipulations for exactly, okay, so let, let me take, take a step back. Budgeting is great for the reasons I just said, mm-hmm. here's one problem with budgeting. It's it's no fun, yeah. right? Like you're sitting there going, Woo! Yeah. I'm budgeting right now." Not only that, but it totally sucks the fun out of spending. Right, right. You're like, "Oh man, I keep, this uh, this like this uh, this sweater I just got for gram- Grandma uh, Joan is is like so awesome." Oh man, it costs sixty bucks. Shit, you know now my budget yeah, is yeah. so so it really sucks the fun out of spending. Um, I money just budget all day long. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah, never get enough. Of exactly. It. So. So, uh, so, so it does. We call it pain of pain. When you go to the Colorado, uh, you know, weed shop or whatever, it's uh, you know, most people walk in probably with a budget, but uh, but that is definitely the painful part. I, mean, <laughs> I just want one of everything. Well, I mean, that's the whole reason, right? It takes <laughs> yeah. away the pain. So, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah so, so this pain of pain thing right. is a, is a major problem. So we're actually working with a company called Hello Wallet. And Hello Wallet is this big budgeting platform online that people use hmm. um, in addition to doing this this stuff o- over the, the break. But what they find is that people – a lot of people start with the best intentions, which is, oh, I'm going to budget. And then over time, it just sucks. It sucks the fun out of spending and you find people just dropping out and stopping uh, the budgeting process. Hmm. So how can you get keep people engaged? And so this is coming back to, the, to what you raised before. One manipulation that we're trying right now – is to ask people to tell us why they're saving. What's some big thing you're saving up for? Some people would be like, I'm saving for my big vacation. Oh, my kids are, are going to, to private school next year. New I got to save up for that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's like focusing on a benefit that mm. now I'm going to sit there and budget and watch every dollar when I, when I go grocery shopping. 
But I'm no, going to focus more on the. It's a game. That's yeah, right. You're focused more yeah, on the long yeah, term. Yeah. Like here's what I'm going to get out of it. Uh, and so uh, that that's the idea of the study. We'll, I'll let you know if it actually works. This is what I need works. to be doing. Yeah. yeah. So actually, the way we set up the study is we had people um, write a couple sentences and then take a picture off the internet of the thing to to like sim- symbolize the thing that they're saving for. Mm-hmm. Paste that on the top of their budget, and then whenever they're shopping, they're tracking what they're doing, which is no fun. But at the top of the sheet is some reminder of, of what it's all for. Are scientists reading the secret all of a sudden? When, <laughs> when did this start? Is that right? <laughs> I don't Have you ever seen, uh, uh, or seen like the idea of it is like you do all this, uh, you make like a collage of all these like, well, it must be a great idea. You want, <laughs> and you, like you manifest them with your brain or whatever. It's just being silly. The power of positive thinking uh, yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, this, though. Yeah. That, that makes total sense. You're turning yeah, a loss yeah. into a, theoretical game it makes sense to us we'll see if it actually works in the the real world who who knows but uh that was the idea Hmm. that's terrific well uh so before uh, we wrap up what um i have each one of my guests uh plug a a non-profit of their choice what uh what did you select i'm gonna um go for the boulder humane society oh awesome in honor of uh my buddy donnie whose dog is sick and he's a big supporter of the Boulder Humane Society. So yeah, yeah, I love the Humane Society. Yeah. We've plugged, uh, we've plugged them many times on the show. So Boulder's nice. a dog town. Yes, it is. It's awesome. The I mean, dogs in like bars and stuff <laughs> everywhere. like that. Yeah, everywhere. <laughs> um, uh, well, so, um, so in closing, where if you don't agree with Michio Kaku, where are the aliens space station? <laughs> oh no, I totally believe there's a, a alien megastructure. I'm serious. <laughs> Um, you, do you, you think your listeners will know about this? I mean, no, no. I gave I, a talk well, the other I, I didn't. day. This, this is no. Well, now I want to. You know I was just it? being silly. Okay, no, right. I, so I, let, I don't want to. I'll spend a couple more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I actually gave a talk the other day, and I was like, guys, what I'm going to talk about is mildly interesting. So I want to tell you about the most interesting thing you'll hear about today. And I started my talk that way and told them about this KIC. I think it's eight six two four eight five two, and K stands for Kepler. Kepler is the um is the uh, planet finding yeah. uh, spacecraft right. um so it's a it's a it's an observatory in space that was that looks at a small patch of sky and looks for transiting exoplanets what that means is you see a, a star you see the light and if there's a planet around it every once in a while it'll dim just a tiny bit mm-hmm. and we can record that dimming and so I already knew all of yeah, that. Uh, if you would have, this is all yeah, that. that. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, they, they process the, the, the data with these algorithms, but what they do in at the same time is they have these teams of human beings called planet hunters. And they look through the data just to look for anything weird that mm-hmm. the algorithms might miss. Cause the algorithms look for very specific things. They look for these transits. They found one planet out of a hundred thousand that, that this looked at, I'm sorry, one, one star mm-hmm. that had the weirdest light curve, that you could ever imagine. So hmm. in a very, um, so like if you see a planet, I, I can't, I'm, I'm doing stuff with my hands right now, which is like not good radio, but um, you see these dips in the light curve for a Jupiter-sized planet is about 1% of the, of the dimming. So that's about as big as planets get. Um, so like a really big planet will dim at about 1% and it'll be very periodic. So whenever it goes in front, it'll dim for a while and then it'll go away and it'll, and, and then it'll come back. Gravity warps the uh, the the light, right? That's that's, that's a idea. different type of that. That's called gravitational lensing. Mm. That this is a different thing. This is just merely looking oh, at. There goes light. my illusion yeah. of explanatory <laughs> depth again. I mean, imagine imagine a, a searchlight and a and a bug flies in front of it. Okay, mm-hmm. that light is now a little bit dimmer. Right, right, right. Few okay, less okay. photons coming to you. Gotcha. Okay, so so this one, what they saw was in a very irregular fashion. This thing is dimming in crazy amounts, twenty two percent light dimming. Hmm. And so what what the people who noticed this started saying is like, okay, what could this be? Well, it could be maybe like a, a dust cloud of debris. Um, like we had in in the early stage of the solar system or whatever. Um, basically, none of these explanations, these natural explanations, make much sense um, for various reasons that I won't get into. In the 70s, there was this guy called Freeman Dyson. You probably mm-hmm. heard of him. Yep. Great physicist. Yeah. He had this idea called a Dyson sphere. And a Dyson sphere is um, when a civilization, this is amazing, like, thinking by this guy. When a civilization gets to the... Um, place where it can control the power of its own host star. Mm. 
mm-hmm. by building a giant sphere around the star that's basically a, a light collector. Uh, it's called yeah. a Dyson sphere. And he said in the 70s, we should look for this stuff. And this, this other guy, I forget his name, I think he's at um, Penn State, had written a paper just a little while ago that was saying, like, what would this stuff look like? Like, what would a Dyson sphere, or there's another thing called the Dyson swarm, what would it look like in Kepler's data? And he, and he sort of traced out what it would look like, and it looks exactly like what this light curve looks oh, like, basically. That's and so people started going, oh, my gosh, this is so cool. This is so interesting. Um, could, could we have finally, like, found extraterrestrial intelligence? Not only that, but, but like, a really high-level extraterrestrial intelligence. And I got all excited about this. I started looking at it, and then um, I found out that SETI, um, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, pointed a telescope there to try to look for uh, signs uh, and stuff like that. They didn't see anything, but they don't really have uh, As, a big enough telescope yeah. to actually really see much. So, um, so it's, it's a little unclear. There hasn't been any, 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 any good explanation yet. There's something about like a breakup of some comments or something like that. But anyway, Michio Kaku um, goes on the news and he's like, basically says we found an alien megastructure. I mean, it's just like this. So people were quite annoyed by that. I mean, talk yeah. about confusing the heck out of people. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, th- this is great because I have people writing all the time wondering um, when I'm going to get physicists and futurists and stuff like that on. And I told them I'll do it like a year from now. This is se- just got into season two. I'll do it for season three. Cool. I we, might, we might know the answer to this mystery by then because the next time there's one of these major dips apparently they can get a better look at it and get a better sense of like the different wavelengths that it happens in and stuff like that oh and if you want to talk about futurism and all kinds of stuff like that i'll come back on your podcast because i love this crap wonderful okay (laughs) well we'll do that and so this is a teaser for what season three is going to be like everybody i'll tell about asteroid mining i'll talk i'll talk about the fermi paradox i'll talk about it all wonderful all right (laughs) looking forward to it well uh thank you philip looking forward to next time um, and everyone, you can go on to the here we are podcast.com website and you can, um, you can click on the link for, uh, Philip Fernbeck's work and, and learn more. If you'd like, do you have like a Twitter or anything like that that you want to plug? I joined Twitter just to get a refund from United Airlines oh, nice. or I'm sorry, US Air. Don't but, worry about it. These are all questions that I should ask off air typically, right. but I'm not the most professional host in the world. But uh, thank you so much for coming on the program. Look forward to Space Talk with you for uh, for part two uh, next year. And thank you, everybody, for listening, and I'll talk with you next week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Next week on the program, we have a much-needed episode on personal finance. If you're anything like me and Boy, I sure hope you aren't. Um, financial stressors are a big part of, uh, of our lives. And um, I, it's something that often overwhelms me. And I'm an exceptionally disorganized person and, and really just don't have um, near the handle on my personal finance uh, that I could. I've never really looked into it that much. And... Um, Fortunately, my guest next week, Harold Pollack, uh, wrote a book, The Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to Be Complicated. He breaks down basically everything you need to know about personal finance for your average person uh, into 10 simple rules that all fit on an index card. And we go through it, which what uh, we go through what each of the 10 rules is um, very uh enlightening it's already saved me money in my life i don't always apply the things that i learn in these podcasts as much as i should and and this is no exception but already the little things that i have applied have have uh saved me um several uh several fees and payments and stuff per month and have helped get me thinking about my financial future and so uh so maybe you're just crushing it financially and you just you're totally organized and have everything under control and you're doing everything absolutely right um that is awesome congratulations and you have no need to listen to next week's podcast except to laugh at what a buffoon 
I am in the financial realms. But uh, but if you're anything like me, you're going to find next week's episode very helpful. So tune in next week to Harold Pollack, the author of The Index Card, Why Personal Finance Doesn't Have to Be Complicated. And make sure and check out uh, the book ahead of time if you so desire. I'll talk with you guys next week. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for the reviews, all that good stuff. And hooray! say uh seinfeld was on an island and he was blowing boris karloff what would it what would that be like (laughs) it might go something like this oh mr karloff i loved you and frankenstein and i love giving you a blowjob why mr seinfeld i'd love having you 